Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Scott Zimmerman. Scott is an expert in optics and has focused his attention on quantifying the health effects of natural sunlight. With over 35 years of experience in the industry, Scott has unparalleled knowledge about how light interacts with systems. His innovations and inventions have been used successfully in a wide range of military and commercial products that include night vision displays, liquid crystal display backlighting designs, and lighting fixtures. More recently, he has been working closely with world-renowned researchers in the field of biology, looking closely at the relationship between natural light, rich in near-infrared, melatonin, and cortisol. His publications are alongside Professor Russell Ryder, the world's expert in melatonin. Scott's insights are profound, and they're changing the way we perceive our relationship with light and are shedding a little bit of light on why we are yet to get a grip on the diseases of modern life. Scott has also started a company, Nira, and seeks to integrate the best of LED technology and the best of incandescent technology to make light bulbs that are safe and provide much-needed near-infrared wavelengths absent in modern fixtures. I learned so much from Scott in this conversation and I really look up to him as he's asking all the right questions and I really appreciate all the work that he's doing. So with all that being said, I really hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for coming to speak with me, Scott. I uh, really appreciate it. I mean, the the work that you've been doing, uh, I think is going to be very, very important um, as far as our understanding of melatonin and the way that light impacts our health is concerned. So, I mean, I, I want to know what your, what your background is um, and how you managed to get tangled up in biology and looking at, looking at optics in the human body. Yeah. Well, um, my background is I'm basically a mechanical engineer that started to get to work in optics. I was doing a lot of aerospace stuff, night vision work, things of that nature, displays. And I have a, I guess I'd say one thing I'm probably pretty good at is inventing. Um, I was brought into one of the research program research uh, uh, centers uh, for Honeywell and Allied Signal uh, quite a while back. Got to work with 350 PhDs. I have 85 issued patents in various areas. Um, and I worked for big companies for a while. And I said, you know, I want to do something on my own. I started couple of companies trying to to lighting in lighting areas but um what it, the heart of things is i love to model what's going on uh, optically and i started looking at um modeling the eye and the brain the fetus and all this other stuff and what you start to see is is that the body is assuming that it uh, is exposed to something that's the entire solar spectrum, not just a little slice of it. And once you start looking at that, you start to see these amazing optical effects, especially in the near infrared, because as you know, you may know, I, there's a biological windows. In other words, air regions of the solar spectrum where it penetrates deep into the body. And we're talking about easily into an inch into the body and the more i started doing looking at how light penetrates and moves around the body you know first off i guess i should say anybody who doesn't believe that light can penetrate into the body inches should just take their finger put it over their cell phone flashlight in a dark room and you'll see how it just glows and it's it's this amazing effect where 
uh, in the near infrared, when the absorption gets low enough and the scatter gets low enough that you start to get these kind of um, volumetric diffusion that goes on. And it's really the body's way to actually extract or use or collect and localize energy in very specific places, in particular in your blood vessels, in your retina, in the deep fissures in your brain, light just literally light guides down into the fissures. And you're kind of sitting there and you're looking at this and you're saying, hmm, you know, what's it all doing? And that's where I unfortunately I stumbled into the world of biology. And uh, <laughs> it's a, a very difficult place to be when you're an optics guy. But uh, thanks to people like Russ and, you know, I, I started out, I actually talked to Mike Hamlin, who I think you've had on. Yep. and other people like that and you know like i say it just to me I, I was approaching it i believe from a much different position where i was an optics guy i was just looking at where the photons were going and and then when you look at that and you notice that they're localized in certain ways at certain wavelength bands then you start looking in the literature and you start to see that hey you know Hamlin's over here doing red light therapy at these wavelengths because, and you can start to see that, you know, the body is set up based on the assumption that it's being exposed, like I say, from 250 clear out to over 4,000 nanometers. And I, the thing that, that gets me is, is that the lighting industry and virtually everything we're doing on energy savings has the consequence because all of a sudden now we're eliminating huge portions of the solar spectrum. And this is going to be the first generation that that's really been the case. And I keep on saying, and people kind of poo-foo it, but uh, it is, we are going through the largest reduction in solar exposure in the history of human, human race. And unfortunately, there wasn't much in the way of uh, science that went into making that decision. It was driven by lumens per watt, energy savings, uh, the the windows on our buildings are all trying to kick out the UV and the near-infrared. I'm not saying they're not good reasons. You know, they're good reasons, but there's always an unintended consequence when you start doing things like that. And here now, lately, what we've been doing is trying to, with Russ's help and Deborah Burnett and a few others, um, we're starting to combine the optics with the, uh, the the hormone situation. First, it was with melatonin, which I did the original paper with Russ on. Yep. But now we're kind of moving into the realm of it's cortisol and melatonin and the ratios of those two. And what you start seeing is you start to see why do you people you know, why do people commit suicide more likely in the morning? Well, when you look at the cortisol, the melatonin ratios, why do you have sundowning? You look at those ratios, you start to see why. And I think that's what I'd say is what I'm focused on now is trying to give the reason, you know, a, a mechanistic approach to what's going on. Everybody runs studies trying to figure out, you know, if I give melatonin at this time or all these other things, but I've been more focused on trying to do the mechanistic, the what's the actual mechanism, because once you understand the mechanism, it's kind of like asking the right question, you know, type thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess the 
the starting point for all this would be, you know, we evolved for millions of years in the constant influence of solar radiation, which is predominantly, you know, the the longer wavelengths, uh, the near infrared, the infrared. And it makes a lot of sense that our body would have gone to, you know, uh, huge lengths to use and utilize all of these wavelengths to the best of its capacity um, for a variety of different reasons. Um, and like you said, we have experienced in a relatively uh, short space of time, you know, a, an enormous elimination of these wavelengths. And uh, it's unfortunate because we can't see them. So it's not obvious that we're missing anything. Um, so, you know, you get you get these chronic disease epidemics and no one really knows why, you know, there's a lot of different things that go into it. But I think this I think the light story is probably at the center of it. Um, I know you're aware of uh, the work being done at University College London with Glenn Jeffrey's group um, looking at, uh, I know you've quoted uh, one of his papers looking at um, people with macular degeneration um, being uh, halted with the use of near-infrared light. Um, so, you know, there's there's more of a discussion now about the importance of these wavelengths um, and, you know, hopefully that discussion can continue to pick up, um, you know, when, when did you first start to speak about this with, with Russ and, you know, what were, what were his first impressions when you came to, came to him with your perspectives? Well, I mean, you have to give Russ credit. I mean, Russ is, you know, he has a hundred thousand citations, but one of the things he does is he tries to pull in people with different perspectives into what he's been doing, even though he is focused on melatonin. He he was very encouraging. You know, like I say, I, I had never even written the paper. Yeah. I mean, it was he was extremely patient with me trying to figure out how to even do a reference in a paper. Um, you know, and because to me, I I'm an engineer. I'm I'm working on optics and you know filing patents and things of that nature. I'm not wasn't into writing research papers. And what was interesting was the, a little bit of a backstory. When Russ and I first started working on this, uh, I had approached the, the lighting community and I talked to Hamlin and I tried to get the lighting community and Hamlin together and that they didn't want to talk to each other right at that time. And Russ and I had started talking and we wrote a paper and I was actually requested to write a paper by the IES um, uh, four years ago, three to four years ago. And unfortunately, they didn't like what I wrote and they wouldn't publish it. So <laughs> we ended up having to go publish in uh, in some medical journals, and mm -hmm. which was actually a, a great thing in a, in a lot of ways. And because I felt like it, you know, had a little bit better peer review and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, when we first got started, you know, it, like it was just the idea of combining the optics with what the circadian things that, that Russ have been doing. And he, he really has been the champion of the extra pineal, the fact that melatonin is produced actually mostly outside the pineal gland. And I think now at this point, it's pretty much, you know, while Russ would say, you know, we haven't absolutely proven it, it's pretty much a given that, you know, you go out and you go sit yourself down uh, yeah, under a in near infrared whole body exposure thing, you're going to fall asleep. There's a reason you're going to fall asleep. 
you're kicking your melatonin through the roof. Yep. You know, the same thing happens when you go out and exercise. And that was really the, the latest or uh, some of the, the later papers we started looking at, uh, you know, getting the data. And what's amazing is, is there's this huge uh, expansion coming, our new, new technology coming in in the biosensor world. And when you start looking at what happens with the hormone levels in real time, because bear in mind, anything that's out there that's associated with circadian is not really a real-time measurement. They go and they take somebody, they sit them down in the dark, they lay them out, they don't let them eat, they don't let them do all this stuff, and then they measure their circad the melatonin levels as it changes and cortisol levels. The minute they have to do that because the minute you actually start doing something, exercise, eating, you know, going out in the sunlight, all those hormone labels are shifting and they don't behave the same way. And, you know, that was some of the, there's only really about four papers in the entire world right now where they actually are trying to measure it during something like exercise, during, you know, uh, you know, being in sunlight. And it was very hard to find real data that you could, that was what I called during a stressor, you know, the reactive oxygen species are kicking up. The mitochondria are starting to push out all this melatonin. And one of the best papers was by Theron and followed up by Zoo, where they started to show that in sweat and in plasma, you could actually measure these transient spikes. You know, you start doing exercise, you're on a stair step or whatever. Your cortisol and your melatonin both go up together. They don't go up in different times. They go up together. And then what happens is, is the melatonin appears to actually start to affect the ACTH levels in the brain and starts to cause the cortisol. Because the reality is everybody needs cortisol to react, but bad cortisol running rampant is a really bad thing to happen. Yeah, And so the body has these other hormones coming in that are suppressing the cortisol levels in real time. And so what you end up with is you start out with a rapid increase in cortisol and in melatonin, but then as you, as Gao showed in his sweat measurements, uh, he has a really, some really great papers that, you know, about 10 to 20 minutes into the exercise, the cortisol level starts to drop off, but the melatonin doesn't. And so you get this little bit of excess. So the body seems to be designed to essentially finish a particular stressor with an excess of melatonin, which is a, the, the body's best antioxidant. And, you know, so you stay and you get this common sensation of, of sleepiness, I guess is what I'd say, after you do certain stressors. Yep. And it's really just related to how your hormones are being shifted. Now, it doesn't discount anything that's going on with circadian. Circadian still does its stuff and all that. But it's kind of like most of the data is only really applicable to somebody who's bedridden. Mm. You know, the minute you or I go out and do something, all of a sudden you have this transient. And these numbers are huge. They're four or five times the levels that we would typically see at night yep. in the plasma. But it's, it's really hard to measure because the reality is you need some kind of a major stressor to get to the point that the mitochondria, which has a huge advantage in that there's 10 to the 17th of them in your body, yep. 
but they have to gen all be generating enough melatonin to actually feed back into the plasma or through the interstitial fluids to get to the point that you can measure it in the plasma. So that's why most of these people that are measuring it, they're not really measuring the total melatonin or the total cortisol because it's actually intercellular and you know the muscle cells are responding by generating enough melatonin to deal with the reactive oxygen species that they are putting out. So you know that's you know I guess that's a roundabout answer to your question, <laughs> but, but uh, you know it, it's uh, to me it's just absolutely fascinating how the body is capable of doing uh, as as all these different systems that are running, and you know and then from an optic standpoint. You know, it's just overwhelming or humbling to see how the body takes advantage of the different parts of the spectrum. And my the unfortunate thing is, is that um, the people that were that are focused in on the energy savings of DOE and people like that really haven't taken this other part into account or consideration. And I think that COVID proved beyond a shadow of doubt that if the consequence of saving a little energy is people get sick more, there's no energy savings. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's my concern. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to focus in on that, uh, that first paper that I was aware of, I think it was 2019 melatonin and the optics of the human body. Um, one of, if not my favorite papers, I know a few uh, doctor friends of mine also say it's their favorite paper. Um, and there's a few amazing graphs in there that, talk about the folding of the brain and how those folds are actually somewhat designed in in a way to uh, ferry the light as far into the brain as possible. I'm not sure if if that's exactly what what you meant. Maybe you can help me clarify that. But um, first of all, people might be a bit weirded out by thinking that light makes it through the skull. Um, so what's what's going on there? Well, if you actually look at it, and I think, it, I don't know if you've ever uh, seen any of uh, Roger Seaholt's videos. He does a, has a couple of uh, illustrations. And then there's a TED Talk where they, uh, one of the ladies there I could send to you that does an illustration. But, you know, in the old days, if they were checking your sinuses out, they would literally take a red light, shine it up through your mouth and out the, so they could actually see what kind of occlusion so they can see through the bone structure. Yeah. And it's like I say, I, it's hard for people to get the idea, but you can literally walk outside now with modern cell phone and you can put it up against your arm and have the sun coming through your arm and, and covering up the, and you can see the red window associated or the biological window associated with going clear the way through your arm, through the yeah. bones and everything. Yeah. But there's a big difference between optically between absorption and scatter, mm -hmm. you know, and what happens is, is that the absorption coefficient goes down so low, even in bone that you get the scattering effect, but it's not an absorption. But when people have tried to measure it, most of the people will go and take a lamb's head or whatever, and they'll stick a, a detector in there and they'll shine a light through it. They're not taking into account that that's not the way it works. You, in right. order to measure a volume diffuser, it's a very difficult measurement because you have to take into account the fact that light is penetrating not only from this one spot, but multiple spots, and it's all additive in its sort of nature. And uh, once you get through the skull, 
you've got what it does is it essentially acts their forehead acts like it's a really great filter. And the same thing happens with the, a woman's skin for the fetus in the womb is, is that literally it blocks the ultraviolet and invisible from getting down into the, into the cerebral spinal fluid or into the amniotic fluid. And both of those have peak transmissions at 850 nanometers well into right. the near infrared. Right. And so what happens in our lighting world, we call that a light guide. Essentially, it has the cerebral spinal fluid is very clear. It doesn't have much scatter. And so it tends to propagate the light down into the, the fissures of the brain and makes this you know amazing ability for uh, the near infrared component to uh, to uh, propagate, like I say, propagate down into the fissures. And it's just so amazing when you look at a cross-section of brain and you see the gray matter, where it is and how it follows those fissures. And, you know, I, I know there's a lot more biology than all that, but from an optics guy's standpoint, mm. you kind of look at it and say, duh, yeah, you know, that's what it's supposed to do. Yeah. And, you know, we use light guides all the time in, in the lighting industry to propagate light down from one point to another. If you look at ceiling panels that have LEDs on them. The LEDs are on the edges and they're light guiding it down an acrylic or a polycarbonate guide. And then they're having little places where they extract the light that allows you to get it uniform. And, you know, I just don't believe that there's, there's so many things that the body is doing optically to localize and collect near infrared and put it right where it needs to be that it's on purpose. I, I'm mm. sorry, <laughs> you know? It's yeah. it's not just a, a happenstance that, you know, and, you know, you look at the, the a mother's womb, uh, how the skin starts as, you know, you go through the pregnancy and eventually the, the skin starts to stretch. I had my wife and I were lucky enough to have twins and she had 13 pounds of baby in her wow. and, you know, it went translucent. I mean, I could see through her basically. And so it's changing the spectrum and there's all these thing indications that that is important to how the fetus's eyes develop and other things develop is it gets introduced to this thing. And I was talking to some of the people in one of the neonatal units and they were saying how um, they're starting to figure this out with neonatals is that everybody was under the assumption that uh, the neonatal baby coming out would want darkness, but actually, and, and quiet. And so they would literally go and they would cover the neonatal bassinets with uh, towels and things like that to make it darker. But now what they're figuring out is, is that, no, it actually needs light. It needs light to come in and actually synchronize the baby. And so there's all this stuff that we're still trying to figure out. And this was just 10 years ago that people were looking at it this way. So, Yeah, but, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, but the paper was uh, mainly associated with uh, trying to bring together Russell's uh, uh, work on extrapineal melatonin and link it up to what's going on with the near-infrared component. And the idea that seems to be the most prevalent is, is that the near-reactive oxygen species that's being generated in the mitochondria, melatonin is produced locally intercellular to uh, to that particular cell. And only when you get enough reactive oxygen species does enough melatonin get made to actually spill out into the other areas. So is is the but, reason near infrared light 
um, causes an increase in this mitochondrial melatonin because the near infrared light helps the, the mitochondria produce energy more efficiently so that as a result, you're getting more reactive oxygen species? Well, <laughs> I think it's really complicated, to be quite honest. And, mm. and you hit on the one of the things that came out of the data, because see, what we did with our data was our, our first work was is we combined optical ray tracing with the work uh, on um, reactive oxygen species or free radical generation in skin. Yep. And if you that data actually came out of the cosmetic industry of all places, but uh, what was it we were able to then show is is that okay the near infrared is generating these reactive oxygen species or free radicals all the way deep into the body, and if you make the assumption that there has to be an antioxidant response, of which melatonin is one of the more likely candidates. Yep then it kind of makes sense, you know, and you can try to see that and in certain cases you get so much going on that you get an excess and that seems to be following out of the data as well. So, mm. um, so I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of questions as to what the exact reason that melatonin is being created. But I think with this new data coming out of during transient effects, during stressors like exercise, yeah. It's being generated is the is the bottom line. If it's not, where's it coming from? Because it, it's a whole lot of melatonin when you're sitting there pumping iron or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating to think that um, I think in one of the papers, um, it's, you know, you're quoted uh, suggesting that pineal melatonin represents only about 5% of, you know, the whole, the total pool and um, I think in the latest publication, you you outline four or five different places where melatonin is coming from. Um, one of them being the the microbiome, um, which is probably not all that surprising given that mitochondria are ancient bacteria. Um, yeah. It's not surprising that the bacteria that live in our gastrointestinal tract also synthesize melatonin. Um, do you know, did you get any idea while you were working on that paper about what, what that, what the mitochondrial, sorry, the, um, microbial, um, melatonin might be, um, contributing to, uh, to be quite honest, you'd have to ask Russ a little bit more about that to be specific. I mean, mm. I, I try and stay within my lane a little bit. <laughs> well, I will ask I, you an optics. I have, I have opinions, but that doesn't mean that they're they're based on anything great. But uh, oh, well, I would love yeah. to hear your opinions, even if even if they don't, <laughs> you know, pan out to be true. Um, I, the other person, Deborah Burnett, has been talking about the microbiome for quite a while as well, mm. uh, and the effect on it. And I think that. Um, you know, there's a big difference. What where we're at right now is we're really I'm trying to focus and look at the time in on in transient responses and time based approaches. And there's a huge difference between melatonin that you take internally or, you know, take a pill mm -hmm. and how it releases, even with the time release stuff mm -hmm. versus what we're getting through the skin, what we're getting through the gut what we're getting through all these different locations and the there's there's quite a time delay that that occurs and and you have to take into account the half-life characteristics of the liver and kidney taking stuff out of it so it's a pretty complex system 
So, you know, the idea that I think that it's pretty good right now, our pretty good uh, bet right now that the melatonin is being produced in all these questions, all these different areas. The question yep. is, is what's the most relevant and how do we take advantage of it? I personally believe more in sunshine. Russ would probably say he believes in both, but he, he takes a lot of melatonin. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, um, so I think that that's a lot of that's still up for debate and question, but I don't think what's, a, I don't think it's any more a question that the pineal, I, I make the statement in the paper that, uh, you know, that, to me, the pineal gland and the brain are kind of like the mitochondria and the nucleus, you know, from the standpoint of I look at it and say, you know, the pineal gland is doing an, a very important job to provide antioxidant and all kinds of other benefits to the brain, which is 80 percent active during while we're sleeping. Yeah. And so it needed, you know, I, it's almost like I'd say melatonin was selected for a very specific reason for the brain. And the idea that it's not, and now we know that it's being used also to, for the muscle cells, you know, there's no doubt about that. And, you know, as you say, the microbiome and all these other things, and then where, you know, you have all this amazing effect, you know, one of the things from an optic standpoint is, is that, you know, when we walk outside, a lot of people will say, well, you know, direct sunlight is X, it's half you know, half of it's visible UV and half of it's near infrared. That's really not true. Uh, what happens is, is the minute you walk outside, we are walking vertically. We have hair on the top of our heads. All the surrounding leaves and the trees and the grass are reflecting, absorbing the visible from the solar spectrum and shifting it and, and reflecting the near infrared. That causes a huge shift in the amount of near infrared. But if you think about us walking around, you know, in our birthday suits and, you know, we're standing vertically. It's like this amazing collector that as is selectively uh, picking up all the near infrared that's coming around us and kind of blocking what's coming direct in. And the same, even with your forehead, your eyebrows, you know, there's a lot of reasons that we're built the way we're built and, you know, no hair in certain areas, hair in other areas. And, you know, it's just that from an optic standpoint, there's this huge effect associated with us being outside in nature. And then now all that's going kind of going away because everybody's not spending any time outside. So, mm. you know, and and don't get me wrong, I'm not downplaying the fact that people can get UV, uh, get, get melanoma and things of that nature. You know, it's no doubt that that's true. But going the other direction, there's also no doubt that we're affecting a wide range of things, everything from our susceptibility to disease, to neurological effects, to hormonal effects, testosterone levels. All that's being shifted because of we're moving inside. And even COVID, I mean, we did a, a showed a, a little bit of work where we showed that uh, the people that were in the South, uh, in the air conditioning, actually saw an uptick in COVID deaths for the first time in Texas and some of those places that have large amounts of air conditioning. So a lot of things going on and uh, that are affecting our health. And I think it's been underestimated as to how big a consequence it is. Oh, but, definitely. 
I asked um I asked Glenn Jeffrey this when I had him on and he said him and his um honorary professor uh, Bob Fosbury both said to me that the biggest public health mistake that we've ever made is is our lighting industry. Um they think that that's had the biggest yeah, well, that's what I thought. That, that's a pretty huge statement. And I said to Glenn, you know, what what do you hope to do from here? And he said, look, all I want on my tombstone pretty much is that I I was a part of them changing, fixing the mistake, you know, getting them to put put the um the invisible wavelengths back in the back in the lights and making lighting uh, safe again. He said that's that's yeah. my goal. So you know, it, it's clearly uh, a bigger issue than than we understand. Um, and yeah, we we I I just did a couple of write-ups on on some work. I found this work by Yakimova, Yakimov, and uh, what he did is he actually measured melanin in the outer fifty microns of the skin, and did it at a couple of different skin types. And what's really amazing is is what he was able to show was is that the melanin levels drop in the outer fifty microns of the skin drop off significantly but on top of that it's it's oxidized now for those for if you look up what happens it's very hard to oxidize melanin mm. just with light that's what it does it mm. protects us from light um but the minute you add hydrogen peroxide into the mix photochemically it drops like a rock right and what it appears what it appears to be going on the the outer skin cells are capable under the exposure. This work by Laura Hudson did. She showed that the combination of UVA, visible, and near infrared caused a six X increase in the production of hydrogen peroxide in the outer layer of our skin, right where this 50 microns is. So we have this little, everybody's walking around, they don't know it, but they have this photochemically bleached region, uh, to, like I say, 50 microns thick where not only is the melanin reduced, allowing for 285 to come into this region, but also the lipid level is increased. So the cholesterol level is increased. So we have this, on the outside of our skin, we have this amazing adaptive uh, re micro react, photochemically bleached micro reactor that I believe explains why we're seeing so much vitamin D problems because in order for it to work, you have to be out in the sun, the entire solar spectrum, and you have to be doing that on a consistent basis because it typically takes about 20 days for the cells to move from the basal layer out to the MB left off. But, and it's independent of your skin color. A person who has very dark skin, it still has this, at 285 nanometers, has this region that has been photo bleached. And it is essentially, there's a 5x difference in the optical absorption of melanin at 285 nanometers, depending on whether it's oxidized or not oxidized. So somebody who's sitting inside all the time and they go outside to get their little bit of UVB, they're getting it at a lower rate of production than someone who has been outside on a consistent basis. Even, you know, it's kind of, it's a, to me, it's a, it's just the most remarkable thing. And this guy proved it, Yakimo proved it uh, using some very sophisticated uh, uh, measurement techniques. 
And I can send you the paper that I wrote up on it. But uh, it, it was to me, it was just absolutely fascinating that, you know, we've got this thing that nobody can see, but it's there. And only at 285 nanometers does it really work. So that's absolutely fascinating. I didn't know about that. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and summarize that so you can tell me if I've got any of it wrong. So what you're what you're saying is that there is a section of our of our um, skin that is susceptible where the melanin is being oxidized by hydrogen peroxide, so that there is this layer that is effectively free of melanin and particularly cholesterol rich um so that uv light can interact with it uh, to generate all of those um hormone products is that essentially what's yeah. going on and and then you add on to that fact that there's more and more papers that are showing that when we think about hormones we tend to think about the the endocrine system mm-hmm. you know glands but now it appears the biggest gland, biggest endocrine is the skin. And there's a number of papers that are out there that are starting to show that de novo, uh, the skin, the outer skin cells are capable of generating cortisol, a number of sex hormones, a number of uh, other, uh, other dope. Well, I forget to which the other ones are. But, um, you know, so you're starting to see that it's not so simple. And you think about it just from a logical standpoint, the skin is taking on so much. Mm. The fact that it has to, and I think that's one of the things that, that comes from the, the papers, the more recent papers, is, is that there is no way that you can respond systemically to a number of things that the skin has to deal with. You know, mm. or you get a cut on your arm. How do you do a systemic response? No, it doesn't. It, it builds, it takes, and it responds locally in a time scale that is appropriate. And, you know, the same thing holds true for, you know, like I say, this, the cortisol. You, you got farmer's tan, you know. It's, it's not a systemic response. Mm. It's an it's a, a, it's a autocrine paracrine response that is, and the skin is given the right or the, capability of generating all these different hormones in response to the to that effect because like i say you know what happens in one part of your body is totally irrelevant and you know that's the one thing if you get a chance look at gao's papers on where he's looking at cortisol measurements on sweat and he there's this one paper uh one uh figure that he has where he shows that they took a, a patient or a participant stuck one arm in the ice bath and then he weighed measured the cortisol on the other arm and it took 10 minutes for the cortisol to go from the one arm all the way over to the other arm wow and you could literally see the response from sticking his arm in the bath for three minutes ice bath and you could see that it took all that time to get through the interstitial fluids go around and come over to the arm but, you know, so there's all these time constants that are going on that you have to take into account to really understand it. And so, yeah, I just think it's absolutely fascinating, personally. And you were saying before that this, just to jump back to what you were speaking about before, this this layer of, of sort of bleached um, skin where there's little melanin but lots of um, sterols, lots of cholesterol, um, that only occurs w- with chronic exposure, continuous exposure, day in, day out, not intermittent exposure. Is that correct? 
Yeah, because uh, what Yakimov showed was is that these outer 50 microns, there's a drop off in the melanin levels, and that mm -hmm. he noticed based on Raman that most of that was oxidized. Yep. And like I say, it's extremely difficult to oxidize melanin using just light. That's what it's supposed to, it's designed to do is to handle high flux of light. Yep. But you add, all you have to do is add a little bit of hydrogen peroxide into the, and make it a photochemical leaching. Yep. And everybody knows, you know, you can photo, hydrogen peroxide works great on hair. You know, mm. <laughs> to Absolutely. bleach it out. Yeah. Yep. So the body's been doing it. For millions of years we just didn't know it was there and that that fits absolutely perfectly with all of the um the melanoma research that shows that chronic exposure um you know um, occupational exposure to sunlight has a protective effect uh whereas intermittent exposure to sunlight you know the the summer holiday where you've been sitting in an office for six months then you go out yeah. to to um you know the beach and you get you know a huge amount of uh, uv uh, and your skin's not prepared for it those are the types of exposures that are uh, associated with melanoma not the continuous ones so this fits absolutely perfectly with the epidemiology on on those types of skin cancers yeah and and you know it opens up one of the things i like about doing the optics is it's optics I mean, yeah. we don't have to get into other discussions about all this other stuff. It, and I did a paper with or an article with John Luis down there at uh, in uh, Miami. And Professor Luis is uh, uh, John Luis has uh, done a lot of work on circadian effect within the black community. Mm -hmm. And when you start, you know, it was next to impossible to get data, optical data on people with dark skin. Yeah. You know, it's it's it's. It's so concerning, you know, it's so taboo in some ways to have this conversation. Yet when you do it, and we've done one of the, one of the few people that actually measured it out to some, you know, reasonable levels. And, you know, you start to see that there's a real reason. If you're sitting in Chicago and you're not getting out in the sun, or even if you are, you need three times the amount of near-infrared exposure to generate yeah. the same level of stimulation that I do. Conversely, yep. I go down to the equator and hang out there for six months and I'm toast, you know? Yeah. Yep. And, you know, the body is amazing in its ability. And that's just looking at everything as homogenous. In the optical world, there's this other effect. And one of the reasons that when you put your thumb over your little camera light is, is that you're not just looking at some homogenous number or a uniform distribution. Mm -hmm. Literally, the melanin is put in certain parts of the cell. It's isolated within the cell itself. The interstitial fluid is a, has very low absorption, allows for light guiding and distribution down through it. So, you know, that's not the same as just saying everybody's dyed this color and everybody's dyed that color, and that's not how it's working. And that's why so much light can penetrate so far in the body is, is that it's not just a standard uh you know beers lambert situation it's this composite material that has light guiding capabilities even within the interstitial fluids so it's pretty fascinating i think but, oh it's it's incredible it's absolutely incredible we're like a light harvesting machine excellent way to put it i yeah. like that and because uh, i mean just... it really is we're designed to collect 
And just so. just to just to um, touch on this idea that basically, if you have more melanin, you need more solar exposure. Not just because the melanin is preventing you from making, um, you know, compounds from UV light, but also because melanin is preventing the absorption of the near infrared. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know what? Um, what we did is is that I, I did a, a series of uh, I again was asked to write a paper for uh, one of the cosmetic industries. And because we were using their data and yep. unfortunately they blocked me from publishing that one as well. <laughs> but, but uh, uh, what it was is what we showed was, is that if you take a look at the optical characteristics, you know, melanoma is, is, can kill you. Obviously mm -hmm. it's not a good thing, yeah. but um, what we've had for the last several decades is basal cell carcinoma increasing, especially among white males. Yep. And when you look at it optically, it makes total sense because what happens is when, uh, if you look at the data, and this was data by Zostro, um, the ESR data, what you find is, is that half the free radicals being generated in the outer skin are due to UV, but the other half are due to visible. Yeah. And in particular, the violets, the blues, the blues. and the greens. So what was the problem? The problem was, is that in order to block, and so if you look at it optically, the penetration characteristics of blues and greens allow it to hit basically the basal le le level. And what happens is, is that, you know, if you provide somebody with sunscreen, yep. well, socially, you're not allowed to put blackface on somebody. It doesn't go out too well. But the reality is, is that that only blocks the UV, which is very effective at dealing with the sunburn. Mm. But it also convinces somebody if you that sunburn is actually there as a warning signal, you should get out of the sun. Yeah. OK, so now if I'm blocking the part that generates the sunburn, but I've still got the blues, the greens and the and the cyans going off. I've just encouraged the public to sit outside exposed to the part that is actually generating the basal cell carcinoma. Yeah. And I was sitting there and one of the researchers said, he said to me, he said, Scott, we know this is true, but melanoma is much more fatal. And we can 95% of the time we can cure basal. And it's kind of hard to sell makeup that's only available in one shade, black. And so, you know, what do you have? What you now have out of this whole thing is you have a bunch of women that are dark skinned who are literally being put, have makeup that has SPF in them when they don't really need it. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a difficult problem, I guess I'd say, because you're kind of stuck with this um, issue that what's socially acceptable is also making people sick in my opinion. And that's, that's uh, one of the concerns I have with what going forward. So, you know, like I say, from an optic standpoint, it's pretty straightforward. You know, you will, if you block off the UV stuff, you're not going to get a sunburn, but you are going to expose people to this violets, blues, and cyans. And the only way to block those is to actually, and there was a company down in Australia that was actually trying to sell some products out there that had darker skin tones trying to deal with this issue. So, mm. 
Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. it's crazy to me that the answer isn't just go in the shade. Um, yeah. But... yeah. <laughs> well, you know, my I grew up in Kansas, and my grandpa, you know, he had a straw hat on. He had a long cotton sleeve shirt. He had overalls. And, you know, when it was time for lunch, we went in the shade. Yeah. You know, and that's that's the thing that gets me. I mean, there's there's all this work that's out there where they're talking. They they start out with ASTM 1.5 direct sunlight bearing down 1300 watts per meter Kelvin or meter squared. And that's not what we are designed for. We're designed for sun being in the shade. You, you know, all all mammal, all, you, most animals know that in the heat of the day you're not going to just hang out yeah you're going to go find a good shade spot and well what I, I think is just so amazing is is that if you look at the reflectivity have you ever seen near infrared photography i have yeah i, I mean it's absolutely incredible you told a, a, a funny story about um, them wanting to put it in the phones but then realizing it was a very bad idea um, <laughs> yeah yeah but but i mean when you take a look at the the infrared response uh, take somebody who's taking pictures in the near infrared mm -hmm. what you'll see is is all the trees are white it's like we're in a snow the, the green the the wheat fields are all green are, yeah. are all white and it's because there's this huge increase in the reflectivity associated even dirt has a higher reflectivity in the near infrared than visible mm. and so what you're literally doing is your the our surroundings are filtering out the higher energy photons that are capable of doing damage and allowing an excess of near infrared to come into your body. And the majority of it goes straight through your clothes, you know, yep. or a lot of it. So, yeah. And that's the great thing. You don't actually have to be in the sun. You just have to get outside and you're still getting mm -hmm. a lot of the benefits of that natural light. Um, even though you're not, it's not being directly, uh, those photons aren't coming directly into you from the sun you're still getting all the benefits of the near infrared. So, you know, you can go outside, get your, get your UV dose till the point where, you know, you know, you, you need to get out and then you can get out into the shade. And as long as you're still staying outside, you, you reap all the benefits of the circadian element, but as well as the, the, I guess the photobiomodulation element as well. Yeah. And that's the biggest concern I have with the lighting industry is, is that mm. they took out, you know, if you look at Mark, Mark Cooper's work or where he's talking about uh, vitamin D type production and the effect that we're, we're not looking at the skin is generating vitamin D without going back to the kidney or the liver. It's generating de novo. That, that's pretty self-evident. And it is part and parcel of the protection of the skin. But same time is at the same time you've got the near infrared, which is actually stimulating melatonins and other type of responses, and removing increasing blood flow. You know, there's this great work by Han Li Lu, where she's uh, measured using broadband uh, near infrared spectroscopy in living people, where they literally measure. Okay, have I exposed near infrared onto the skin of this person? And she's doing it on brain or in the brain area or whatever. You can literally see a, a marked uptick in the hemoglobin oxygenation levels, the cytochrome C's in the blood. All these things are shifting. And, you know, it's all part of the body's survival technique. And, you know, I think that it's underestimated how much is going on in the outer layers of the skin 
and how different that is, is you, between the, having it come into your body that way versus a pill, you know, and that's yeah. where, you know, Russ and I may disagree in some, to some extent, but, um, and I, you know, I take melatonin too, but, uh, like he said, most people around him that know him get <laughs> come inclusion, but, you know, and then what we're, we're starting to look at is, is that, um, as you get older, it's amazing how quickly our ability to generate melatonin. Now, most of it is measured, mm. you know, looking at pineal numbers and stuff like that. Mm. But, you know, the bottom line is the, I think most people would say that the mitochondria is such a key element that defines aging at this point yep. in time. Yeah. And, you know, you think about it's losing its ability. It's telomeres are dropping, things of that nature. But the reality is, if you start to lose your ability to generate melatonin in response or an antioxidant in response to cortisol you know you've plot the cortisol as a function of age cortisol is one of the few hormones that actually increases as we get older mm. and and i believe that it's because melatonin is is dropping off yeah. because yeah. campino did a, a nice paper where he showed that melatonin actually suppresses ACTH, which then depresses cortisol so this balancing act is going on, obviously. And, uh, you know, why do people move to Florida? Good reason. <laughs> yeah. And uh, obviously this balancing act is being quite disrupted by modern lighting, um, which is uh, very, very rich in the blue and essentially absent in the longer wavelengths. Um, you know, these 4,000 Kelvin lights are pretty much standard uh, everywhere you go. Um, you know, no near infrared, just complete. I mean, the the spectrum, their spectrum is is alarming when you look at it because you got this huge spike, um, you know, right in the blue range, and that's obviously damaging melatonin um, as well as probably causing direct damage to the skin um, when you're indoors and it's not being buffered by near infrared. So, um, I was wondering what you thought about people wearing blue blocking glasses with the red lenses that um, stop the the blues and greens coming into the eyes at night. What, what are your opinions on that? Well, I mean, my opinion is, is that it's the ratio that matters. You know, if you're going to be, you know, I walk outside in a lot of blue mm -hmm. and a lot of different, you know, that's one thing I kind of disagree with the circadian people personally mm -hmm. in that if I walk outside and I happen to be, in Sedona around the red rocks, my spectrum that I'm getting exposed to is entirely different than if I'm walking around, you know, out here in the green, you know, on a walk in the green. Yeah. So the idea that you can define some color temperature or, well, I'm going to get a little more cyan or something like that. I think the problem, in my opinion, the problem is, is that uh, we've gotten over-focused on circadian. Mm -hmm. And that most of the circadian issues are really more related to the fact that we've taken away the majority of the solar spectrum from our lives. And therefore, you can start to see these small changes. I mean, I'm not saying you can't see that people have done great work and great data on that, but it's only under very controlled conditions can you see that effect. And once we started seeing these transient response effects where literally cortisol and melatonin were spiking you know, in 10, 20 minutes and then yep. falling off in a 30, 40 minutes to levels that were much higher than what 
you know, like I say, there's not very many people who have measured during transient events. And that melatonin is coming from someplace and cortisol is coming from someplace. Mm-hmm. And I think we've, you know, the melanopsin, there's a work by um, Peter Light up in Al- Alberta, Canada. And he was able to actually measure using uh, uh, patch cell, cell patch cell, actually measure the voltage on individual cells mm-hmm. and then expose them to light. And he, what he showed clearly was, is that, uh, the skin has more melanopsin in it than our retina does. Yeah. And, and so the skin's responding and, you know, how do you isolate that thing? You, you showed your glasses there. Most of the experiments that have been done on circadian, they stick their, your whole head inside the, the integrating sphere. Well, all that skin area has got melanopsin in it just the same as your eye does. Yep. Are you responding to that? Mm. Are you waking up? Is cortisol awakening a function of eye response or is it a function of skin response? You know, there's yep. a lot of questions, I think, that are left there. So, yeah, I mean, people like to wear glasses. I, I don't have an objection to it. I'm just saying that I think that if you can look at what we do every day when we walk outside, I'm not. that's not the issue. The issue is, is that when I walk outside, I got this huge influx of near infrared and UV that are coming into this into the equation and setting mm-hmm. the baselines. And if you don't have that in there, then yeah, you probably should wear glasses. I mean, you know, and that is what we have in our modern society is we, yeah. you know, they came up with this correlated color temperature because the reality is that makes no sense to call something 3000 Kelvin that only mm. emits between 400 and 700 nanometers. You know, 4,000 Kelvin is a black body radiator and it mm-hmm. has most of its energy in the near infrared, just like the sun does. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, yeah. anyway, um, I wanted to um, switch gears and ask you about um, animal research, which for all intents and purposes is exclusively done in the absence of near infrared light. Um, you know, when, when, uh, lab animals are kept inside. They're kept from the influences of uh, solar radiation. How much do you think this is impacting the results of animal experiments? Well, there's this really great paper that I, I found um, that was uh, where they took uh, spiders and scorpions, mm-hmm. and they had little cages for them. One of them they exposed to outdoor light, sunshine. And the other one they exposed to narrow band, uh, high, uh, high efficiency. This was a fluorescent, but it basically was a narrow spectrum type, uh, full spectrum bulb. Mm-hmm. And what they did is, is that unlike other insects, uh, uh, scorpions and, and, um, uh, spiders have cortisol in them. And what they did was, is they looked at this as a function of time. And what they found was, is that whenever they go out and check on their the burrow, all these spiders and, and scorpions would burrow. The ones that were being exposed to the full spectrum lamps would never, they never saw them outside of their burrow ever. The ones that were exposed to natural light were out all the time. Then they actually killed them and actually measured and they found much higher levels of cortisol in the spiders and in the, the uh, scorpions compared to you know, the one that was just under natural sunlight. 
just mm-hmm. one experiment that shows kind of a thing. But I, I fundamentally believe that what we're really doing right now is setting up a situation where the body is and insects and other things are actually being having elevated levels of stress hormones on a regular basis. Yeah. You know, life now is stressful. I'm not arguing that it's not stressful. And we can have another hour and a half conversation about the food supply. But, uh, you know, the reality is um, if you look at just from a pure, you know, everything we do uh, that we've done between the windows glazings we put on, the lights we're using, is stimulating cortisol you know cortisol is responding to you know is a circadian you know we have an awakening and all this other stuff Mm -hmm. and everything we're doing is also suppressing melatonin you know so it's like we've got the cortisol you have to get up in the morning you have to go out there be active you want to suppress you know your fevers until the afternoon by having high cortisol levels but then eventually the intent is, is that the melatonin, in my opinion, melatonin is there to pr- suppress the cortisol level down to some point where the brain can do what it has to do at night. We need to sleep. We can't be, you know, flashing ourselves with a bunch of light and what happens. You know, most of the data where they looked at it, they were always looking at melatonin. Well, they should be looking at cortisol because cortisol is spiking up while melatonin is being suppressed. Yeah. And... So I would just argue that, you know, the insects and what, I think they're just really stressed out. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, hey, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, um, I wanted to ask you, since you uh, mentioned you'd spoken to Mike Hamblin, uh, what do you think about the current state of photobiomodulation? You know, there's a countless number of companies out there selling uh, panels that have um, red and near infrared LEDs in them. Um, you know, what are you, what are your thoughts on the use of uh, photobiomodulation devices? Well, I think it's along the same lines of what I think about what's going on with the lighting community and the visible spectrum only. Mm-hmm. Is is that I, th- I believe that, that uh, what we're seeing, the uptick in, in red light therapies and near-infrared is really symptomatic of a deficiency in sunlight. Yep. And one of the things when I was first working with uh, or talking with uh, Dr. Hamlin is, is that I, I noticed that he was running the experiment and he would do a 20 minute, you know, they, they, they really need to focus on a 20 or 30 minute treatment in order to get results or yeah. to, to make it make financial success is what I would say. And, but I was looking at the levels that they were using in milliwatts per centimeter squared. And if we were in an office that was 500 lux of incandescent, mm-hmm. you were basically getting five milliwatts per centimeter squared, you know, Maybe it was broadband across a very large range, but it it's it's kind of like if you're not controlling what happens to that person who walks out of the room after getting a treatment on whether or not they're going into a fluorescent lit room or an incandescent lit room or going outside, how are you really measuring the the benefit, I guess I'd say, right. of the whole thing? And, you know... One of the things I did is, is I started generating these uh, time these timelines 
uh, and I can send you some of them. I'm getting ready to publish it. But um, you start to see that, okay, I'm going in for 20 minutes to uh, near-infrared whole body. You see this huge spike. I have no doubt there's a huge spike in the melatonin. But if you understand that it's going to, it's like taking a, a drug. You know, you got the drug, but, you know, it's going to, the body's going to clear it out after the, any generate, whatever you've generated in a certain amount of time. Yeah. And it looks like this kind of spike with this long tail that runs out. Mm. And, you know, and we're talking about an hour. Within an hour, you're basically back down to baseline. Now, is there long-term benefit? That would seem to be the case. There's the paper by Zhao where, you know, they did the basketball team, Chinese basketball team, and they had regular exposures at night, and they saw an increase over time. And I do yeah. believe that it's no different than training or anything else that you do. You know, there can be, but all I'm saying is, is that, and that's why we do what we do. We're selling lighting systems that basically reintroduce the near infrared back into people's lives, because I believe even at a low, you're better off doing a low level on a continuous basis than doing some kind of a spike. And that's what, that's what, that's my take on what's going on. And, mm -hmm. you know, but in general, I think that it's a, probably a fair statement to say that what we're seeing is a is a response to a deficiency that we mm -hmm. self-induced. Yeah, so. absolutely, light light deficiency. Uh, I think I think that's really what we're seeing, and uh, I, it does seem to be you know beneficial to somewhat um, replenish what we've lost a little bit. You know, we're indoors sometimes, um, most of the day on on sometimes, so. It might be good to use a little bit of extra, but I, I agree with you. I think um, chronic low-grade exposure, you know, just like we'd have if we were living outdoors, I think that's the really the what we should be trying to look towards. And uh, at the end of the day, you can't really replace the sun, can you? Yeah, and, and I think that it's really dangerous in some ways what we're doing. I mean, people can kind of poo-foo it, but when you look at, there was some work done in the 1980s by Ferrer where he actually went to people who had schizophrenia and clinical depression and he measured at midnight their cortisol and melatonin levels. And then he had a control group that he measured the same way. And the melatonin to cortisol ratio was five times lower than the control. And, you know, and the, you know, all I guess I'm saying is, is that, you know, when we start messing around with these hormones, there's all kinds of consequences and touching base on, you know, it's very hard sometimes to connect things up on a neurological basis versus a physiological basis. Mm. You know, people can run some experiments and, oh, yeah, I don't, you know, I have more cholesterol. I don't have more cholesterol. But, you know, are you depressed? Are you not depressed? You know, I I believe that some people in particular are are being uh, put in a position and you know one of the things optically is is that you not only is it the, the black population that's susceptible but children you know one of the things uh, I started doing a lot of this work because my granddaughter was diagnosed with neuroblastoma and um, you know one of the things that you notice is is that there's various therapies out there hyperthermia type therapies that uh have an effect where they're using near infrared to augment into various cancer treatments. Because, and then we've spent a lot of time and money 
associated with trying to model some of those effects because it seems like cancer cells are more susceptible to certain wavelengths. They absorb more than other than healthy cells. Mm. So, you know, there's a lot of, of opportunity, I guess I'd say, to supplement or help the medical community do things if we would just accept the fact that, you know, light in particular is doing a lot more in our body and especially around our hormone uh, that, that um, you know, and there, there's all kinds of, it's pretty well known that um, a lot of cancers metastasize during the early morning hours. Mm-hmm. And if you plot the ratio of melatonin to cortisol, it, it hits a minimum right there yeah. associated with the cortisol coming up and the melatonin from dropping off. And so I, like I say, I, I'd like to see more work in that area. And, Mm. you know, we've been trying to do it as part of what we're doing, but, um, it's very hard because the pharma pharmaceutical people spend a lot of years trying to kind of poo-foo what's going on in photobiomodulation and things of that nature. And they're not really, I think they could be complementary. They don't have to be, you know either or type thing. Mm -hmm. I don't believe I'm going to solve anybody's problem with cancer by shining a light on them. But I do believe that, you know, there's plenty of studies out there that show that patients that are next to a window or, or, you know, other things like that are much healthier. And, you know, that's kind of what I think. So, yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, Speaking about windows, um, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about architecture. Uh, and I also want to tie this into your company. I know you're making sort of hybrid light bulbs that have, you yeah. know, um, LED and incandescent properties to to give the best of both worlds, I suppose, and basically making the safest and most effective light bulb we can. Um, what are some things we can do in our homes, our offices, um, to sort of buffer the effects of living an indoor life and and trying to uh, give us the best opportunity to for light to give us all the health benefits that it can give. Well, I think uh, part of the problem is is that, I, like I say, there's this conflict between uh, lumens per watt, energy efficiency, and yeah. what's going on. But and I was just I got a, an ad for Manderson Window. They were talking about that they blocking ninety five percent of the UV, and then they're blocking the near infrared. And I'm kind of going. Why are you doing this? And, yeah. You know, <laughs> and, you know, the simplest solution is for everybody. And, you know, I'm getting up. I, I just celebrated having my eighth grandchild. So I'm getting wow. up in age. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, I just want them to roll me. I keep I t- tell my kids, I just want to deal with you at 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes at night. Just roll me out. Leave me there. I won't bother you. Bring me back in. You know, it's it's uh, that's the first and foremost and getting outside and enjoying because there's a lot of other benefits to being outside as well. Yeah. But I think that there's there's a compromise here somewhere where, you know, the architectural, you know, community is was there was a gentleman who was chief engineer for one of the big architectural glass companies and I was talking to him. He was retiring. So he's being honest at that point. <laughs> but but he. His comment was, is that, well, that I was explaining to him the near infrared and he said, well, that explains it. 
He says that there was a study being done or they had been offering various kinds of glass. And the further they moved it out into the near infrared, the hospital was seeing better results for their patient. Wow. But they hit a they hit a wall where they couldn't go any further out because then they would not meet the energy requirements associated with the the government. Yep. And so now what they could do is that they could filter do what nature does and filter some of the visible energy coming in mm -hmm. and let a little bit do more like a natural approach mm -hmm. or have something where they have solar tubes or something like that. And that's part of kind of what we've been looking at is how you can bring it back in a realistic way of understanding, you know, there's none of us that want to have the planet die out. We're not, that's everybody wants to help the planet, but yeah. at some point in time, you also have to be smart about how you're doing it. You can't just make some bold statement. And I think that that's really what kind of happened with the lighting industry is, is they went full hog in and then you got the circadian stuff going on and you got all this stuff. And how about we get back to the basics here first, you know? Mm -hmm. And so what we're trying to do is offer products that, you know, for a kid's room, if you're listening, you know, we'll read with your kid, it has a three to one near infrared to visible ratio. And then when you, it's time to go to bed. You click another switch and it's uh, 10 to 15 to one near infrared to want, you know, at a lower level. So it's kind of like uh, campfire coals, you know, for some people. And we've seen some pretty, you know, uh, interesting results with some of the moms. Moms are really good about, you know, wanting to see how the baby can sleep a little bit now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, and, and, you know, is it going to solve everything or is it going to fix what you did in the, during the day? No, maybe not, but it gives an, it's a tool. Yep. It's another tool that you can do with that type of thing. And then I believe very strongly that, um, and I could say we can have an hour and a half conversation about that later. The food supply is, in my opinion, very heavily laden with cortisol and especially mm -hmm. baby formulas and things like that. There's this really interesting thing. Have you ever heard of night milk? Well, yeah, I, I'm just looking at my paper. I wanted to ask you about night milk because I've known this for several years um, that the time you draw milk, actually, it, the milk contains a host of different things depending on what type of day it is. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, not many um, not many mothers know that uh, they should write the time down that the milk was, was um, pumped if they use a pump. Um, because that's going to inform the baby about um, time of day and and all of these kinds of things. And um, yeah, I mean, you can give a little bit more background about um, the dairy industry, knowing full well about all of this. Yeah, well, I just think it's fascinating that every time we kind of, it, and it's very subtle, the effect, mm. you know, from the standpoint of when you were in the olden times, the baby was with the mother, the mother fed the baby when the baby was hungry and everything was all synchronized up. Yeah. And then we started being advanced in our modern society. And all of a sudden mom has to go to work too. So she's going to pump. And, you know, my, my daughters all would keep track of when they pump, what day it was and, and try and cycle it through, but they wouldn't keep track of the time. And then you, you start looking at dairy farmers and dairy farmers have known forever that there's such a thing as night milk because, but what do they do? They dump it all into the same bin and it all gets homogenized up. And you, and then they, there are a couple of companies now, I believe over in Germany that are starting to offer products where it's, uh, you know, synchronized, you know, you know, what time of 
it was actually, uh, you know, produced mm -hmm. and, you know, various things that they're trying to do. But, uh, and then, you know, I, I, I'm not a big fan of, uh, of breast of, uh, uh, formula to be quite honest, <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, for those who need to, then, uh, you know, they should provide something that, that takes into account how the mother's timing is. And, and then you go one step further back and you say, you know, if the mom's got really stressed out and, and not having good circadian approach, you know, our uh, situation, then, you're bound to have colicky babies and mm. that just makes it just gets compounded. You know, I had, I had twins and when they were angry, they were angry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's so fascinating what, what the body does to, you know, keep track of the time and, and fluctuate uh, throughout the day to best adjust for, you know, what, what we need to be doing. Um, yeah. And I think it's, it's hard because, it, it, it's just a, to me, it's a, a great illustration how little it takes to mess up something that uh, nature's been doing for millions of years. Yeah, you know, nobody nobody intentionally tried to make babies scream more. You know, yeah. it yeah. just just kind of comes out of the the what we're doing naturally. Mm. So, I wanted to ask you. This might be um, a little bit of a silly question, but can you differentiate the dif What's the difference between um infrared light and heat i know they're they're related but they're yeah. not the same thing no and and it's a uh, kind of the bane of my existence to be quite <laughs> honest you know because there's absolutely a watt of near infrared and a watt of blue if they're you know you got a black you know so you're just absorbing it is it's a watt is a watt you know mm. the problem is is that you know when you look at it the body the absorption spectrum of water in particular that uh, goes is very strong out into the you know the near infrared in far parts of the infrared mm. and so you know people can feel it and i and i i do that with i kind of take advantage of it to just convince people that there's something going on we take one of our bulbs and we provide only the visible portion the led portion and then mm -hmm. we take a bulb that has our Naira bulb that has the incandescent and LED combination. And you put, you can literally put your hand, it's three to one near infrared on one, it's zero to one near infrared on the on the visible one. Yep. You can just literally put your hand above it and you can feel the difference. Well, mm -hmm. that's heat, I understand, but what it also is, it's you're increasing the dilation or, or the vasodilation, and your blood flow is increasing, the waste removal is increasing, all this stuff. So that's not, you can call it heat, you can call it whatever you want, but it is doing something biologically. We know that for a fact. And when we removed it, we took away those biological effects. So I don't know how to explain it other than to say, you know, you 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 would equate it to, as being heat, but the reality is it's no different than what's going on in the visible spectrum. Right. It's just, it's just uh, as far as a watt is a watt. So, so if I have a hot shower or a hot bath, am I getting some form of uh, red light, uh, in infrared light, near infrared light um, penetrating into my into my body? No. no, yeah, I mean the body. I mean, if you plot the various black body curves, you know, you got to get pretty pretty hot, right? Okay. It's really been, you know, and and it's really been. And it probably answers your question better than anything. You know, 
visible light has always been something that we could break up into and we could see the different bands. There's a blue, there's a green, there's a red, there's a yellow. Well, the same thing happens in the near infrared, but the difference is, is that the emitters that we have access to are broadband emitters, you know, a filament bulb, a ceramic heater, a, you know, in your hot shower, the hot water mm -hmm. itself. Those are extremely broadband emitters right. because as you get into those longer wavelengths, it, it tends to extend the bandwidth way out. And, you know, and that's why in some ways I, I kind of like what they did with the pot growers is, is that they started talking about photons, uh, counting photons. You know, you have X number of moles of nanomoles of photons per second or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, the problem is, is that everybody does exactly what you just did. They have visible, which there's blue, green, red, and, you know, all these different colors. And then there's heat, you know, and that's not any, that's not true. Mm -hmm. It's really a function of how the body's using those other wavelengths. And that's what I find really fascinating is, is when you start looking at how different portions of the spectrum in the near infrared, there's all these different absorption bands for the proteins, for the fats, for the water, all these different absorption bands that are fairly narrow that we have full access to at this point, because there are LEDs out there that can do those different things. And that's why I've been working on this thing with the, with the hypothermia to try and generate a light source that just targets the gets absorbed maximum absorption in the uh, cancer cells versus the healthy cells. And it's not for generating a temperature gradient. It's just for generating higher levels of reactive oxygen species in the camper cell versus the healthy cells. So is this like yeah. a photodynamic therapy approach? Uh, no, it's uh, <laughs> the photodynamics guys are mainly focused on trying to introduce some kind of absorber yep. into the body. And the last thing, you know, if you if you had a cancer kid or grandkid, the last thing you want is another drug going into their yeah. body yeah yeah, yeah. You, you know so no what i've been focused mainly on and is trying to look at how can we set up the an environment like a vest or something that uh that it targets kind of puts the cancer on its heels a little bit so mm -hmm. that the other treatments the can't because, you know, I mean, what are cancer drugs doing? They're basically generating free radicals of reactive oxygen species in the hope that they can, you know, kill more of the cancer cells than they kill of the other. But, you know, for like I say, anybody who's had cancer kids, you know, the damage done by most of that stuff is, is pretty horrendous. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and but again, it's it's been really hard because the you know, the way the research dollars are spent on is, is allocated. You have to go try something on an adult before you can try it on a child. And it, then they try and just scale it back down in some ways. It's not really targeted for a child. Yeah. And that's especially problematic in the optical side because, you know, while 60, 50 to 60% of your cells will see some level of near infrared in a child based on their physical size, you have the same penetration depth. It basically 100% of their cells are interacting with sunlight. So doing things in, on adults is really not, you know, effective. In my granddaughter's case, you know, she had a tumor on her on her neck that my daughter found, 
it was a darkening area. It looked like a bruise. But it tells you that, you know, there's a lot that could maybe be done to set, you know, to try and do some kind of a continuous low-level treatment. You know, as you say, it's kind of like the window sitting in. I believe in, I believe that that the body's got a lot more capability than what we give it credit for. Absolutely. So, yeah. So anyway. Mm. Yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit more about Nira, uh, your your company, the bulbs that you're selling. Um, yeah. Um, well, what it was, um, what uh, it really is, is it's pretty simple. Um, you look at LEDs, LEDs are extremely effective at uh, generating visible light, mm-hmm. but they're pretty lousy at generating near infrared. Um, because they're narrow band and the near infrared is huge. I mean, you're literally talking going from 700 out to beyond 2000 nanometers mm-hmm. and that having some effect, you know, like pick a wavelength. I, I mean, that's, that's uh, the problem I think with a lot of the photobiomodulation is, yeah. is that it's not just one wavelength. It's yeah. a bunch of them and we don't know how they all work together. So, but incandescent filaments, uh, are lousy at generating visible light, and that's why everybody uh, hates them, or didn't hate them, but uh, that's why we're trying to get them. But the reality is, is they're extremely efficient at generating near infrared. Yep. And and ninety some odd percent of the light emitted. But uh, what was really the problem with incandescent was, is that uh, you had to drive it extremely high temperatures on the filament, the tungsten filaments in order to get the blues and the greens. So, you know, the reality was is that we were overdriving. That's why the life was 2,000 hours. Now, yeah. if you take, I don't know, probably in Australia you don't know about it, but we have what's called the centennial bulb up in uh, Washington or Portland. I'm not sure which. I, but, I do know uh, about it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, what it is is it's just a filament that has been run at very low current dense or real low relative low temperature or color temperature um and so what we do is we uh use basically little grain of wheat bulbs they uh, inherently have about uh, 15 to twenty thousand hours by the cells but we run them at a low voltage because i'm not trying to generate visible light with them i'm using leds to generate that and that's what ends up being the um uh ability to you have the 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 filaments actually have a longer lifetime than the LEDs when you do it mm-hmm. that way. Yep. And what's really cool about the whole thing is is that um, the near uh, the combination when you put a filament a filament uh, bulb actually has a uh, electrical characteristic that is inverse of what an LED does. So when you put the two of them together like we do, it creates a linear response which means that I can generate a dimming ratio. I simply change the voltage up and down mm-hmm. to whatever I want between 40, 60 volts and down to zero. So I can do a hundred thousand to one dimming range just by adjusting the voltage. Right. And that to me is one of the biggest issues associated with uh, artificial light at night. You know, first and foremost, we need to turn a bunch of lights off. But the second thing is, is that, LEDs, as they're used now, have pretty lousy dimming range. I mean, when you think about going from sunlight down to moonlight is eight orders of magnitude. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to generate a huge dimming range in order to be use one source to do that. And, you know, that's typically what I think is the problem with a lot of the 
You know, you can't, you need to be able to provide, tell the neighbor to turn it down a little bit because they really can't right now. And on top of which, the ones that can turn it down are doing it using pulse width modulation, which, you know, I, I, <laughs> that's my, my other pet peeve with the lighting industry is, is that there's just way too much uh, modulation going on. And is, is that flicker? Yeah, it's, it's flicker, but, um, if you look at, if you actually do a, a, a look at, uh, if you're outside, um, we are never exposed to anything that's a much uh, faster than about a half a hertz. So a one hertz type range. Mm -hmm. But what you find is, is that uh, the lighting industry is defining flicker as being something, some 30% modulation at a frequency of a thousand hertz or 10,000 hertz trying to get... And this was the problem with the fluorescences is they had to go up yeah. to 10,000 hertz. And so all that frequency content uh, is, uh, is, in my opinion, is bad for you. And that was one of the things that, as I told you, Peter Light was actually measuring. What he did is he was literally measuring the, uh, po the cell wall potential on individual cells exposed to light as a function of time. And those cells are, you may be able, your eye may not be responding to flicker, but your cells are. Yeah. Because he was able to show that, you know, you have millisecond response times on a cellular level. How bad that affects you, I don't know, but I don't see the reason to have it. Exactly. That's my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> and so what we've basically done is we said we have this uh, light source, it has a we have both a DC and AC, but we take advantage of our characteristics to minimize. In the DC, you have zero flicker. In the AC, we have very small amount. And that flicker is what you had when you were sitting in an incandescent lit room in the first place because the filaments tend to be, have a lot of thermal inertia and allows it to smooth out some of the flicker effects that uh, other people have. But, you know, that's what we're, we're basically selling. Um, and I'm just really trying to get people to understand that there's this whole, we're not, I'm not adding something that wasn't there all along. It, we just took it away temporarily and yeah. it needs to go back. Yeah. And, and it's pretty easy to do. I mean, it's cheap too. I mean, the little filament bulbs and LEDs are very effective working together and yeah, they don't have to, there's almost nothing as far as material. You know, if you look at a standard LED bulb now, all the weight and all the money and all the toxic materials are in the drivers. You know, that's that's where it's uh, all coming from. And, you know, I especially when we get down the road, when we really start to do things like uh, looking at DC grids and microgrids and things of that nature. Um, I think that this is a much better approach to to lighting to switch over to DC and, and have some kind of a DC to DC converter that's operating optimized for, for everything. But the other nice thing is, is because we use the incandescent filaments, it gives us a power factor of 0.97. So we beat everybody on, on power factor and a bunch of other stuff, basically. Oh, that's that's amazing that's, yeah i i did notice you're 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 sold out at the moment of all those all those <laughs> bulbs yeah well this is very much a family 
operated our friends and family finance things. So I'm doing the best I can. Yeah. I at least got it to the point now that I'm not making them. So you'd be better off than <laughs> when I was making them. So, you know, it, it, it's something that's a work in progress, but uh, we're starting to see, a, you know, it's an interesting problem from a marketing standpoint, because how do you go back to the lighting guys and say, yeah, you know what you were doing? You need to add this in first. And that's a hard nut for them to crack. But mm. what I'm finding is, is that, like I say, the moms and a lot of doctors and nurses, if you, like I say, if you get a chance to look at Roger's videos, he's done done some really great podcasts on our work and done a lot more on the answer. Maybe some of your questions on the medical side, yeah, because he pulls it pulls in those other other um, uh, a bunch of other papers that are beyond me, to be quite honest. Right. So. Oh, well, it's, it sounds like you've got an incredibly um, tight grasp on, on all of this and uh, really feels like you're leading the way in this conversation. Um, in a lot of ways, the, the papers that you've been involved in have uh, really shifted uh, my perspective. And I know there's a, there's a small but very passionate group of people who have been following uh, those publications uh, and uh, yeah, think that there's a huge potential in, uh, in where they're, where they're headed. So um yeah thanks thanks for all the work that you're doing we all, we all really appreciate well, it i i think i'd like to do another shout out just with russell and the other people that have been involved from the standpoint of you know this is not going to get solved one of the problems is, is always that we do these silos and mm. you know one of the things that i think that that i get to say that i do is i'm pretty good at at figuring out when we're in a silo Mm. And we need to start pulling other parts in. And I, I just think that, uh, you know, Russ is, was so helpful to put up with a, an optical engineer trying to do a biology paper is ridiculous. So, yeah. Oh, but, look, it's, yeah. it's not the first time. I mean, uh, I spoke with Bob Fosbury, who's a, an astrophysicist working with um, Glenn Jeffrey in a, in a neurobiology lab. And, and, you know, they figured out a bunch of stuff together that they wouldn't have ever figured out by themselves. So uh, I think it's a similar sort of relationship with you and you and Russ, you know, uh, where the two of you together are greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Well, I think Fosbury's has some great, has some done some great work. And I think that, it, as you say, there was a negative comment about him being an astrophysicist and not knowing anything about biology. The reality is, is that if, unless you're an astrophysicist, you don't understand anything about light. So, yep. you know. <laughs> no, it's a huge benefit, huge benefit. Yeah. And that's the great thing. Um, they could both guide each other and fill in the gaps uh, in each other's knowledge. So it worked out really, really well. Yeah. And, and I think, like I say, I mean, the we have such a distorted food chain and yeah. lighting situation and all that stuff that's going on. And, you know, some of us have grown up in it and, you know, I'm no spring chicken and I've got way too many pounds on me, but, uh, you know, part of it is, is that, uh, we're not living in the environment we were designed for Yeah, and it makes it hard. So. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's why we have to take every opportunity we can to, um, you know, bring things back to the way they should be. Yeah, and it, it's especially disheartening when you see some of the studies that are on ADHD and the cortisol levels that are associated with those. Yeah. And, you know, when we're, you're sitting, sitting, at, uh, I had a really good friend that uh, 
you know, he was amazing with the computer, but he had three screens going simultaneously. And it basically just fried him out after a while. And, yeah. you know, and you just want to want to say, hey, you know, there's maybe we need to think this through a little bit or maybe there needs to be, you know, go back a little step back and, and set some timelines, especially on children, you know, yeah. the myopia epidemic and all this other stuff. There's a lot of things on the, on the side of children's that that I think, uh, you know, could be hormonal based issues. Yeah, well, I'm really hoping that, you know, conversations like this help uh, spread the word a little bit. And, um, you know, even if it can just help one person uh, reinstate a good relationship with uh, nature and and light, um, you know, then we've done a good job. Yeah, I guess. I I question for you. I mean, is is ADHD and autism different in Australia than you've seen in like the U.S. or? I, I mean, think we're it's, up to like 10% or something like that are, are being medicated at this point. It's very similar from my understanding. Uh, we we tend to follow the same trends that the U.S. follows. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we, we could spend several hours talking about the, um, you know, just those, just those two um, issues and, you know, everything that's involved, but yeah, it's a very it's a complex scenario, I think. Um, yeah, well, thank you very much for putting on the podcast. I appreciate it. No, um, my it's my pleasure, and I, I I'm so so grateful that you're doing what you're doing, and you uh, took some time out to speak with me. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this one. If you'd like to support Scott's work, I've left all the links in the description for you to check out if you'd like. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on Spotify and YouTube, and leave up to a five star review on Apple Podcasts. This is a simple no-cost way to support my work and help me reach more listeners. Please feel free to leave comments on my YouTube channel as I do try to read through as many as I can. I've also put links to all of my social media platforms in the episode notes if you'd like updates about the podcast, information about health, or if you'd just like to reach out to me in general. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Take care.